Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Andrew Russell is primarily known as the man who photographed the famous East and West shaking hands image of the Golden Spike Ceremony, May 10, 1869. He also took nearly 1,000 other images that document almost every aspect of the construction of the Union Pacific Railroad. He contributed immensely not only to the documentation of the railroad, but also to the nation's visualization of the American West and earlier, the Civil War. Uh, Daniel Davis is a photograph curator and associate librarian at Utah State University Special Collections and Archives. He's author of the book Across the Continent, the Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. It's out from University of Utah Press, and uh, Daniel Davis joins me in studio. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tom. I should say welcome back. Yeah, We, we talked about while. the Bear Lake Monster, I think we were uh, recalling. Yes, I think last that, was, time you that were... was a while ago, though. Yeah. yeah. I'm much uh, older and wiser now. <laughs> <laughs> and that was an interesting discussion. It's always, yeah. always fun to talk about that. Uh, we're talking about uh, the American West and the railroad. Very interesting uh, uh, discussion, uh, I'm sure, today. So uh, how did you get interested in Andrew Russell? Well, um, I was sort of looking for a Western uh, photograph photographer to write about. And so um, at that point, I was at the University of Wyoming, and I had heard about A.J. Russell and and a lot of the photographs he took in southern Wyoming of the railroad towns that were being built in 1868 and 1869. And, of course, the famous Champagne photo of uh, East and West shaking hands uh, at Promontory Point. And, um, and I started looking more into it and realized no one had written a book about Russell. And so I sort of thought, well, why not me? <laughs> and in 2010, I took a, sabbati- a summer sabbatical and um, actually traveled from all the way from um, Omaha to Promontory Point and re-photographed a lot of his images. And at that point, I thought I was going to do an exhibit. And um, I, that sort of morphed into this book. You know, that I was working with John Alley, who was then at USU Press, and he encouraged me. He said, you know, you should write a book about this. And so, you know, it took 10 years, but <laughs> about eight years, and, and here it is. Uh, so you uh, you opened the book uh, with your experience retracing one of, uh, retaking one of his photographs. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. You, I mean, you parked off the uh, off I eighty, probably illegally. Probably yeah. illegally. <laughs> you scramble up the mountain. Yeah. And at a certain point, you realize, oh, he was much further up the mountain when he took his photograph. Yeah, that he was. Uh, he had photographed what he had called, I believe, tunnel number three was uh, actually tunnel number. No, what he had called tunnel number two was actually tunnel number three, and that yeah, he was up very much higher on a different part of the mountain. Yeah, and so I thought, wow, this is a guy who has a lot of dedication in terms of how would he get all this? You know, he had this heavy equipment, you know, and how would he get it up the mountain? Yeah. You know, to take this photo, but he certainly had a lot of commitment to getting the right photo. So tell me about the equipment and yeah. and, and the kind of photographs that he was taking at the time. Yeah, so. Um, one of the big, you know, in the history of photography, there's various innovations, right, and things that change. And you and I have lived through uh, the change from uh, film to digital. But at that point, there was uh, a new sort of the new photographic process. It's called collodion wet plate negatives. And, um, and at the time, it was a huge advantage over older techniques, tintypes and daguerreotypes. And um, but you had to essentially you created a negative on the spot. You took the photo and then you processed it and then um, all within about an hour. So that's wet plate collodion negative. And so you had a, a, a dark room with you at the time, which we think of as, boy, that's a lot of work. He had a, he had a little wagon 
and on the back of it he had um his his dark room was set up in this wagon and so he did everything in the dark so he had to memorize where it was but what what that allowed people to do is much better for outdoor photography because before that it was mostly studio photography and so he could do outdoor photography but the main thing is that once he created that negative now he could make as many prints as he wanted right he could make thousands or theoretically unlimited and that gave him you know once you have you know you have a market people want to see images of the west and now you have a technology in which you can reproduce it and sell it you know and make money mm. <laughs> from that and so again that seems very you know at, at the time um uh, another photographer named william henry jackson talked about taking i think 10 photos in one day is a good day that's with bright sunshine, with good water, good chemicals. And so it's very different from today. You know, you just mm. whip out your camera and your phone and take a photo. Back then you had to really think about it, right? Mm. Uh, so when you say the dark, you had to do this in the dark, did he have to wait till, till nighttime to... Oh, no. So, so, so he had... Or was um, it dark in his wagon? Yeah. I mean, if you think of... He sort of had a shelf in the back of his wagon, and then he had this big dark drape that he put over it. And so he would he would get in there and he put, you know, this drape around him, almost like a blanket around him. And then he had this specialized sort of cabinet, I guess you'd call it, with all his chemicals and his bottles and everything that he needed in there. And so he had just had so much experience that you memorize where everything is and you mm -hmm. do it all in the dark. Interesting, yeah. But uh, it, uh, like you say, it was... Uh, quite the process so you know yeah. heavy tripod heavy equipment he's lugging it all over the place has to have his wagon nearby yeah to to exactly. to, uh, to, to develop photographs and, and water you gotta have water yeah he had to really clean distilled water was yeah. really important in the process and he writes about he went up to the high uintas area in i believe august of uh, 1869 and he loved that kind of high mountain water because it was so clean mm. right yeah. he thought that was great uh, so this was in the, the golden age of yeah. uh, f photography of the West, right? Uh, and part of that is there's a great appetite at yeah. least for these images. Well, yeah, and and what I, you know, and part of it's a, a little bit of maybe a generational thing that, you know, you and I grew up with, with these sort of, I did, I'm guessing you did, with these Westerns like Bonanza and mm -hmm. Gunsmoke and Wild Wild West and, and uh I, I grew up watching those and that, you know, there's always kind of been this visual component of the West, whether that's painting, whether that's photography, whether that's Westerns or illustrations in magazines. And so this is part of a long tradition of this kind of uh, to see the West as, you know, the idea is to see its history and to understand its history is to see visuals of the West. And so um, it, as you know, the railroads being built and after the Civil War and in the Civil War, people after the Civil War, people started to really look at the West and with this idea, you know, we can settle this area. And so um, they are um, taking advantage of that interest in the West. And um, and then now they have this new technology, which you talked about, the collodion wet plate negatives. They're taking advantage of interest and now they're selling. Right. They have a market and they can sell these things and and make money. Right. So what was uh, there? There was a stereotype of the West. There's images in the minds of people in the West has been cultivated um, that the railroads were trying to dispel, right? Trying to counteract. Yeah, and um, 
in some of my subsequent research that I've done uh, has been sort of interesting. I looked at popular perceptions of the West and in different uh, magazines and uh, by authors, you know, if you've ever read Roughing It by Mark Twain, which which is, is to me is the most interesting Western travelogue written, the most entertaining, is that uh, he calls it the land of the coyote and the raven, uh, but another word for utter desolation. <laughs> and so, um, and even Dickens wrote about the West. He wrote a short story about the West in Harper's Weekly and um, in which uh, there's a Western Englishman who's living in San Francisco. It's a complicated story, right? Dickens is very complicated, but but essentially he has to travel um, east from San Francisco to get to New York City before this other man does. And he's terrified at the idea of going into the West. One of the things that was always sort of a general shorthand for the West, uh, you know, it was filled with wild beasts and savages, in quote, you know. And so, yeah, there was really a lot of negative ideas negative stereotypes and sometimes they were stereotypes I mean, it was a very dry climate and um the railroads were very much interested in dispelling that right because of course they're they're um they want commerce they want industry they want people to settle in the west they're big landholders and so um russell and, and other Western photographers mostly are, are trying to promote a much more sort of uh, friendly vision of the West, that this is uh, a West filled with people. It has a railroad. And um, this is not this forbidding, you know, godforsaken land, right, that we are in right now, you know, Utah. Uh, so uh, tell us about some of those photographs that, that did this. One, one that stood out to me that you talk about is um, – uh, irrigated fields. Yeah. Uh, the, the Mormon settlers with a little irrigation, I guess the subtext is you too can come out and farm. Yeah. And um, yeah, the, the idea, you know, the great American desert and this idea of, you know, a very uh, sort of inhospitable place. And so, so Russell is taking um, photographs of, of, you know, things that may seem kind of mundane, but irrigated fields in Utah. But at the time, you know, that was sort of a big deal that, you know, oh, you can irrigate, you know, and you can raise crops. And so I, I, in and in fact, one of the things Russell did is he wrote a series of letters back to his hometown newspaper, the Noonday News, and which is a little town in, in where he grew up in, in upstate New York. And so he talks about, you know, um, the 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 Mormon farmers and how well they've done and irrigation and it's funny he doesn't give any credit to them as you know cooperative ventures and working together it's more like well this is easy to do anybody could do this Mm -hmm. (laughs) right (laughs) simplifying yes yeah Uh, you talk in the book about how uh you know just a simple photographs of salt lake city would be reassuring, would, would counteract to this yeah. idea of the, the Mormons are, a, a, you know, kind of a weird, dangerous yeah. cold out here. But their city is quite modern. Yeah, yeah, it is quite modern at the time. And and so, I mean, if you think about it at that point, so they're starting from Omaha, Nebraska, really between a little bit into Nebraska and all the way to Sacramento or, to you know, the Reno area, there's really n- n- very, very few settlements, you know, in terms of Anglo settlements. There's a few forts. And so this idea of having this big city in the middle of this um, was very reassuring to people. And, um, and so with sort of modern amenities, again, that, hey, look, the Mormons did this. A lot of people could do this. And so, again, sort of encouraging that idea of, of the West isn't this sort of vast and inhospitable place, that this is a place that people come out and they, they raise crops and they grow cities, and, and you can do it too, you know? Yeah. 
Uh, let's take a break when we come back uh, more with uh, Daniel Davis. Uh, Daniel Davis's book is Across the Continent, the Uni-Pacific Photographs of Andrew Russell. Um, as we go along, I want to talk about, um, uh, again, how these uh, photographs were viewed, what the effects were, what the purposes uh, were. And you talk about, uh, Daniel Davis, about how uh, about how people view these images. Yeah. And so you, you try to get in the heads of the people back east who are viewing these images at the, at the time. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, you give us some examples in one of the chapters of some famous photographs from our time and yeah. how we view view those. So we're going to talk about those. Um, and Andrew Russell himself. Uh, we'll have more following this break. Europe's cultural borders are blending and blurring these days, especially in music. Immigrants from Africa, the Middle East, and Asia have brought new musical influences. And today's sophisticated recording techniques are creating hip global sounds heard in clubs from Paris and Madrid to Frankfurt and Milan. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join me for Eurogroove, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah's suffrage history. It's being celebrated with a kickoff event Tuesday, January 14th at the Logan Thatcher Mansion. In 1870, a Utah woman was the first woman to vote in the United States, 150 years ago. And then 50 years later in 1920, all women were allowed to vote. And then in 1965, the Rights Act passed. You can learn more about this history as Utah Public Radio, the Cash Celebration Women's Suffrage Group, and Utah State University's Year of Women hold a public book signing, voting rights exhibit, and history presentation. That's Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. Join us at the Thatcher Mansion. More information at cash2020.org or upr.org. Join us tonight for that event. Don't miss out. You're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Uh, the book is Across the Continent: The Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. The author is Daniel Davis. He's a photograph curator and associate librarian at Utah State University's Special Collections and Archives, and he's co-author of uh, Race to Promontory, published by the Union Pacific Railroad. Uh, we're talking about the book and the photographs and interesting uh, history of the West on the program today. By the way, we're speaking of the railroad. I want to remind you that there's a wonderful series. You can find this on our website, upr.org, Ride the Rails, which we uh, broadcast uh, uh, on May 10th of mm-hmm. last year uh, for obvious reasons. Um, so Mary Hears and Kirsten Swanson put this together. Uh, so just to remind you about that, you can find that at upr.org. Uh, so the, 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 your book race to promontory. Yes. Tell me, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, sure. Uh, Glenn Willemson and Ken Burns. Is this the Ken Burns? Yeah. And, and his name is first and in bigger font <laughs> but, yeah. uh, the, than mine, but the, the Union Pacific, um, obviously the sesquicentennial last year was a, you know, is sort of a big deal for them. And, and so they, um, wanted, uh, different authors to talk about different aspects of the railroad and photographs of the railroad and what those meant. And so I was approached by Patricia LeBounty at uh, the Union Pacific Museum and, um, uh, you know, to write a little piece about Russell. And, and so absolutely I did. And, and it's sort of a commemorative book, 
Um, you can't, as far as I know, I looked it up on Amazon and, and you can't uh, buy it on Amazon. It's just an internal publication. And so if you wanted a copy, you actually have to contact the Union Pacific Museum to buy a copy and perhaps they're sold out. I think they made like 3,000 copies of that. Okay. So that, uh, maybe somebody has a copy out there. <laughs> Interesting. And and associate, we were able to drop uh, Ken Bird's name there. That's Yeah, yeah. That's, that's always fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People ask if I if I talked to him when we did this, and I said, unfortunately not. I didn't. I was yeah. one of the authors on this book. Your name's associated with him, at least on the, yeah, yeah, on the cover there. Peripherally, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I want to ask you about this. You chose a quote to beginning of Chapter 1. This is Martha Sandweiss. Photographs are primary source documents that can be encountered both in history and through history. Yeah. So um, Martha Sandwise is sort of my academic hero. Um, I've, I've read everything she's, she's written and uh, a lot of her kind of theory, uh, I've taken her theory and, and implemented it in the book, perhaps uh, not really well. I, I'm not sure. Uh, but, you know, I, I think there's this, I, you know, there's two things with photographs and, and one of them is the way that you as a viewer react to the photograph but then there's also how did the people at that time you know and and what was the importance of that photo in history and so obviously the um the champagne photograph uh the famous photograph uh, was very important that became a symbol in the minds of somebody in 1869 for the unification of the west and you think about it so we go through this horrible civil war and um, that almost tears apart the nation people are looking how do we unite the country and so um, that photograph becomes a symbol not only for Western expansion, but also for unifying the West with the East, right? And, and that the West or the United States is not necessarily a country divided North and South, but a country united East and West. Mm. And so there's a lot of other examples of that that I use in the book as well. Is that how, um, how do we view a photograph in ours and in, in our visual universe that we have in the associations we have versus what did somebody in 1869, what did the, the famous photo of Iwo Jima, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of uh, the flag raising in Iwo Jima, you know, for people that is, that is victory in World War II. And so there's a lot of other examples of that West as well. You know, one of the things I want to do is to get people to think about kind of their own visual universe mm-hmm. and what do, what do photographs mean to you? What do visual images mean to you? How do they shape your understanding of the world, right? We'll put, we'll put that on pause. We do have a caller, so I'll alert you to put on your headphones, uh, Dano Davis. And uh, uh, Denny Davies in Senior City has called us. Uh, welcome to the program. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. How are you doing? <laughs> hey, um, we're not getting any of the snow that you people up <laughs> there are, but we're enjoying the bright sunshine and um, beautiful southern Utah right now. Well, yeah, bright. I could use some bright sunshine. I wish I was there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try and share some with you. Okay, sounds good. Th- did you have a, a question or comment? Uh, my comment has to do with the nomenclature attributed to the, the exact spot where the Transcontinental Railroad was completed. And if I heard your guest correctly... I think he referred to it as Promontory Point. Oh. And Promontory <laughs> Point is actually a physical location south of the summit by about, oh, 10, 12 miles. And it's the point where the Union Pacific uh, tracks now cross the north arm of the Great Salt Lake on a, on a causeway. Mm. And so 
this this concept of um, promontory uh, summit, promontory station, promontory uh, mountains, promontory uh, point. Um, they're not all the same, and I just call attention to that because that's probably one of the most misunderstood or misconstrued locations of this whole story of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, and then I believe you were you were you superintendent out at Golden Spike? I was. I yeah. was there for four and a half years. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. Uh, so you 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 know you know a lot of this history. Yeah, well, well, thanks for that uh, clarification. Uh, anything you want to say about the, about this? Um, you know, we had the the big anniversary last year. Um, it, it was uh, an event that I wished I had been able to make, but yeah, as you know, that wasn't possible at the time. Right, right, exactly. Well, thank you, thank you for that clarification, and and, and, and appreciate that. And I look forward that. to the book. So. Thank you very much, Mr. Davis. Oh, okay, thank you. I, I can't get away with anything, can yeah, I, Tom? Yeah. you got some sharp <laughs> listeners out there. That's right. I, you know, it's funny how that, he's absolutely right, it's Promontory Summit, and that how Promontory Point just kind of becomes, you hear that, and then in the moment, you, you misspoke. And it's a good thing I'm not a politician, because I think I would probably misspeak a lot. But you're absolutely right, it was Promontory, uh, Promontory Summit, yeah. where the two railroads met. Oh, thanks, Denny. Uh, glad you have the sunshine there. Radio, you have to know that we're going to keep you on. on the <laughs> That's certainly true. Okay. It's one of the joys of public radio. <laughs> Thanks, Denny. Appreciate that. Absolutely. Okay. Goodbye. Okay. Bye now. Um, that's uh, Denny Davis, who is uh, I. I happen to know is uh, had a long time career in the parks. Oh episode. yeah. Okay. Superintendent at Golden Spike for a while. Yeah. Could in could if I could just interject a little bit is that I have a, a ton of respect for the people out at the Golden Spike National Monument. We did an exhibit, uh, um, A World Transformed, that was in the Utah State Capitol and um, then here in the library and then at Southern Utah Museum of Art. And they were so easy to work with and so accommodating. And, you know, they really are, are trying to do their best out there. And, and they just, I, I just can't say enough of good things about the employees out at the National Park Service. They were really, really easy to work with. And, and uh, I really owe them a, a debt of gratitude for the, the work they do. I want to have you uh, pick up your line of thought about how people view photographs, what, it, yeah. what, the, what the, photo, the photographs mean. So you were yeah. talking about, of course, the iconic champagne yeah. uh, photo. We talked about, uh, you know, Iwo Jima. In the book, you have the the famous migrant mother yeah, yeah. Uh, photograph, a famous photograph of the, the napalm girl yeah. from Vietnam. Yeah. Uh, I wonder yeah. if you'd talk a little bit more about how, how we receive these images, yeah. what, what they come to mean, uh, you, you know, some of these uh, break through and and become icons yeah, culturally. Yeah, exactly. That these these become symbols for something larger, and um, you know the uh, migrant mother by Dorothea Lange. For a lot of people, that sort of symbolizes the depression. You know, in their mind, this is the depression. Raising the flag at Iwo Jima, that is victory, and um, Napalm Girl, um, that is kind of the horrors of war, and and it was used in a lot of anti-Vietnam protests and things like that. And so, you know, I think we live in a little bit of a different time in that in that we have so many images coming at us and a lot of moving pictures. But you know, if you if you recall back. Um, the photo of the the small boy refugee who died yes, was in the right. you know that those a photo you know makes an emotional connection 
with us. And so, you know, it's something to hear a story. And um, and I, I'm saying this on radio, as I realize as I'm saying this, but but there's something about seeing that photo and making that emotional connection and between that, and it makes it so much more real to that. And so, you know, different images over time have meant different things. I think, you know, the symbol of the East and West coming together um, at Promontory Summit, I got it right. And um, that photo, you know, is one of the, the there's issues with that photo. That that photo is not a complete record of, of everything that went into the Transcontinental Railroad. And there's no Chinese workers in that. It's hard to say. I think some of the workers were probably, some of the Irish workers were probably there. But that's been pointed out. You know, there's no Chinese workers there. And again, that's as a symbol. Every symbol has uh, strengths and weaknesses and and obviously it amplifies certain things but then others it doesn't tell the complete story and i think one of the things is when you look at the entirety of russell's work right uh, over 1200 photographs taken that starts to give you a bigger you know a, a better picture of the entire railroad and tells a more complete story of the transcontinental railroad right um and various photographers had uh, different interests. You, you were telling me before we went on the air, yeah. I think, that uh, you know, Russell photographed the people. That's what he was interested in. Yeah. Um, the photographer for Central uh, was interested in technology. Yeah. And Oh, sorry, Tom. Go ahead. Uh, so that, that was uh, so I wonder if you'd t- talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And so um, one of the things that I've, I've done a lot of research into the background of Russell, and I was always sort of looking for, did he have instructions? What did they tell him? To photograph and I found no nothing you know I mean you think about it this is a huge endeavor 12,000 employees 10,000 employees over 1500 miles you know it was a very complicated and so he's one person in this in this huge machine that's doing this and so I never found any instructions I it's interesting though he talked to um, Thomas J Durant who's the vice president who hired him probably um, and so, and so I was sort of trying to figure out what was he, uh, photographing, um, what was his motivations and, and I, I so I essentially had to say, okay, look at his photographs. What are the photographs that he took of? And we have to kind of assume that he was photographing what they wanted him to do, but his emphasis was so different. Uh, Alfred Hart, um, who was the photographer for the Central Pacific, and he mostly looked at the, the railroad as this technology. And they talked a lot about that time, the, the twin sort of technology uh, uh, miracles of the time, the railroad and photography. And so there was this connection in, in the minds of the two. But so, so Alfred Hart looks at the technology, the technology of the Central Pacific as it sort of defeats, you know, that was used a lot, the Sierra Nevada mountains. And so um, he doesn't really focus on people. There are very few photographs of groups of people. But time and time again, Russell photographed people and people working, people in front of railroads, people, uh, excursion groups who would come out to the West. And that idea really fascinated me. Why did he, you know, why did he do that? Uh, So why did he do that? (laughs) Thank you, Tom. I set you up there uh, for that. Okay. Well, and my theory is that um, Russell was, I think there's two things. One is that every sort of reference I've come across him, and some are pretty cryptic, is that he was a very likable guy. And, and in fact, I think uh, in, in William Henry Jackson's journal, they spent a toget- day together talking about photography and chemicals. I think he says, I found him a likable, affable fellow. And there's a diary um, that I that I looked at from a friend of his, um, C.S. Smith, 
um, on the the railroad, and and they they went they did a lot of things together. You just get the sense this is a likable guy, and um, he just liked people. So I think there's that aspect. I think there's the aspect of you know the West instead of this as as Twain called it the land of the coyote and the raven. But of a land of people, you know, that the West is is a place where people go, sort of almost this human landscape. You come out West and, and you see that. Um, and then I think also there's a kind of a subtle thing, you know, that in 1869, when you looked at a photo, um, you know, most people didn't think in terms of the workers on a project. And so that was sort of not, you know, for a lot of people that wasn't really who built this wasn't really all that important, you know, and so it was the product that they built. And so to show the people who did it was very different at that time. And especially because they were they were Irish. And um, and so I think he is also telling us, you know, these are the people who built this thing. And that this thing is more than just the technology, more than just the finances, more than just the politics that went into it. Um, it, it's about, you know, the people who built this thing. Mm -hmm. And that's, again, that's a theory because I, I don't know if that's the way he thought, but, but that's what I've speculated. Mm. Uh, so he previously, as many of these photographers had, I think they'd, they'd photographed the civil war. Yeah. And, um, the, the civil war was one of those things that people really wanted to see images of early on. There was so much interest, right, in this. And who were the generals on both sides and what were the battles like? And so a lot of photographers took advantage of that, that interest in the war. But what's interesting about Russell is he was the only, he, one, he learned photography in the Civil War, right? He did, wasn't a photographer before that. Um, but he was the only commissioned officer whose duty was photography. Mm -hmm. And so he photographed with the Union, uh, the Railroad Construction Corps. And so he that's kind of his laboratory. That's where he figured this out, this new medium. He had the same darkroom wagon. He had the same uh, cameras that he had in the Civil War as he did out, out west. So it's really sort of he's learning his craft, and then um, and then he takes that and he uses it. And um, there were others as, as well um, who did that, Timothy O'Sullivan and William Gardner, who, who did the same thing. They were photographing in the Civil War, and then they came out west mm -hmm. and then photographed out west. Right? Mm -hmm. If you just joined us, so we're talking with uh, Daniel Davis. He is a photograph curator and associate librarian of Utah State University Special Collections and Archives. He's author of the book Across the Continent, The Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. You're welcome to join the conversation. Denny Davies uh, called 800-826-1495. You can do the same, 800-826-1495, or you can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. So you, you said uh, people were intensely interested in photographs of the Civil War early on. Did that yeah. change? Yeah, as um, as the Civil War dragged on, um, and as you know, it's sort of one. I think it became a little bit of old news, but I think as sort of the horror of what was happening and the death and the destruction um, became more and more evident, uh, photography just sort of you know, people didn't necessarily want to see images of this. And when I say this, I mean, you think about the technology at the time. So Russell isn't actually shooting battle photographs, right? He's shooting, you know, right before the battle and right after the battle and showing a lot of the dead bodies. And so as, um, 
it's interesting at the end of the war um uh, there were some uh gardner and timothy o'sullivan did these beautiful well beautiful and ter- terrifying books of the civil war and um with these large format images and and very you know expensive but they didn't really find a market because by then people are like you know what we're done with this we just want to move on and be done with this and that's partly why the west sort of becomes then the expansion into the west and the building of the railroad become kind of the new big story mm-hmm. right and and so people quickly kind of moved on from that so the, the these would have been many of the same photographers they're the ones who had the skills they would have yeah. photographed the civil war and now they're out in the west um do you think the the war had an effect on how they were photographing the west well, I think, it, I mean, in terms of that they learned how to do outdoor photography, even that concept, you know, you, you got to remember that this all sort of started the idea of, of, of what is photography, the, the, even the concept of taking photographs outdoors, that photographs used to be just studio shot. You went to a studio, you put on your best clothes, and you had a portrait taken, and then you left, and then you had a little tintype, you know, those little cases. Um, so the idea of being outdoors and taking photographs of that, I think also the idea of, newsworthy events we want to see images of this there was a lot of talk it's interesting a lot of talk of of photographs are uh, is the best medium better than art you know than an artist they're not completely accurate but the photograph is is completely accurate and and so people really wanted to see you know the photographs of the west even no matter how seemingly mundane and so because that was the most accurate medium that they mm. could view the west through that turns there's a perception that uh, you know photographs are more realistic, right? Yeah. In a certain sense, they are. Yeah. But there's 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 a lot of artistic <laughs> judgment that goes yeah. into a, a photograph, right? Yeah, and that's one of the the one of the beauties in my mind of uh, and interesting things about photographs as primary sources is that is that the yes they capture this little you know, time and moment in history, but is that the full story, you know? And I talk about this in the book, right? The champagne photograph, that's just a tiny, you know, just a little point in time and which has come to symbolize the whole thing. But, you know, you know, a photograph is a small part easily manipulated, you know? And so they take this photo, this little part, and then, and then it's like, well, what do we see in that? What did people see in that? What did they think that was? And so I, I think that's really one of the interesting things about photographs. And you always have to remember, you know, what I, what I say is, is a photograph is a constructed vision. You know, it's a version of reality that you're getting. It's not the reality itself, right? And so um, you always have to keep that in mind with photographs. And I think especially with historic photographs where people put in, you know, there's very few images and they had to put in so much time and effort and thought into the photos they were Mm -hmm. taking. So for the photographs that become symbols, icons, Russell's famous champagne photograph became an an icon. You talked about Iwo Jima and the the others. Um, It does become shorthand for us, right? It became powerful. It can unify us in in a unified vision but maybe we should look closer is what you're saying because there's there's yeah. not everything there. Well, yeah, it's it's just part of the story. And 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 I think you have to remember that. It's part of the story that can be easily manipulated. And so I think the more we kind of think about the images in our lives 
and the images we see on TV and on the internet. I guess people don't watch TV anymore. There's mm-hmm. the things you mostly see on the internet or on YouTube. You know, um, how are those images being manipulated? Are they being manipulated to get you to buy yogurt? You know, or are they manipulated to get you to sympathize with somebody? You know. And it's not necessarily bad. It's just the way it is. You know, that's just sort of the nature of visual. And so, I, you know, yeah, I, I urge people through the book and just, you know, students at USU is to take a closer look and to take a more critical eye mm. to the images. What's the story behind the image? And then not only that, but in today's day and age, um, you know, photographs, images can be altered yeah. in such a slick way that... That, that maybe what you're seeing is, is absolutely false. <laughs> I'm really glad I'm not dealing in the, in the 19th you know, century. That was much, much harder to do and much easier to detect. And so I'm, I'm glad my specialty isn't deep fakes and things like that. That's just a whole nother world. Yeah. Uh, but, but as you know, studying photographs, I don't know what you, uh, you know, I don't know if you have a different view about deep fakes. I mean, we're all <laughs> we're worried about it, right? <laughs> I don't know what we can do about it. I, yeah. I guess you have to rely on on yeah, that's authentic. You know, to, yeah, to you, those, right? yeah. I mean, I think that one speaks to this. We're going to love topic, but to the journalists, like you know, the people in NPR and UPR, you know, to to do good work and to say, okay, no, this is not real. And I think it's incumbent upon everybody else to you know to view a lot of the images and and the the videos they see with a skeptical eye, you know, and not rush to judgment, you know. Yeah. Let's take another break. We'll come back with our final segment. Uh, the book is Across the Continent, Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. Uh, the author is Daniel Davis. He's photograph curator and associate librarian at Utah State University's uh, Special Collections and Archives. We'll have more following this. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Herald Journal, your in-depth source of local Cache Valley news, delivering local, state, and national news directly to your home, offering online and U.S. mail newspaper delivery. Information at hjnews.com or at 752-2121. On the next Radio Lab. This is not a part of the show. This is real life. What can a pro wrestler? Brett the Hitman Hart and a wannabe knight Don Quixote. teach us about that line between fiction and reality. The fourth wall has just been torn down. Real life just came and tore a hole in the fiction. Oh, the drama. <laughs> That's on the next Radio Lab. Coming up today at 10 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. I'm Greg Dalton. On the next Climate One, is there anything individuals can really do to make a dent in carbon emissions? You know, it's almost impossible to make an impact-free choice. You know, I don't think we should feel individually guilty necessarily for our consumption, but we should feel collectively responsible for fixing these systems and building a better world. Inconspicuous consumption on the next Climate One. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utime. Tom Williams. Uh, we've reached our last segment with uh, Daniel Davis, uh, who's the author of Across the Continent, the Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. You're welcome to join the conversation here by to uh, the phone number, uh, toll-free, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. You can uh, email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. 
so uh, tell me a little bit more about the man, Andrew J. Russell. He was yeah. born and raised upstate New York. Yeah, he, um, he was raised in a small town called Noonday, and N-U-N-D-A. And um, he showed artistic promise early on. And back then, sort of artists would work, um, they would do, you know, signs, say, or paint frescoes or do some sketches and some portraits of people. And he did that pretty early on. And um, he got into uh, something called uh, moving panorama um, shows. And so it's kind of hard to describe, but what it was is if you think of like a spool and a, and a long length of canvas and it would be unspooled from one spool to the next and they'd have curtains behind it. So it was almost like a moving montage of images. And that was actually extremely popular in the 1850s. That was probably the primary way people saw images and they're very popular and lectures would go all over the country. And you, and it was mostly a trip, you know, you're taking a trip to Europe through, you know, the European cathedrals or up the Mississippi river. But when in the West, there was a lot traveling West. And so, um, he would paint those and, um, he actually did one of the civil war and he painted that. And, and then you hire a narrator and you go through these little towns and each person pays like a 10, 15 cents. And, but then he decided to join the civil war himself as a captain. And, um, so at that point it's interesting because he, he doesn't do photography, right. And it's in the civil war, a guy named general Herman Haupt, um, uh, decides, Hey, this guy's an artist. I think he could be a photographer. And so he becomes a photographer and, uh, and with the conservation railroad corps and photographs, a lot of the construction projects that they're doing. And Haupt was this very innovative guy. He came up actually with, you know, the idea of a pontoon bridge. We have a series of uh, pontoons that you, you know, that you can roll, essentially roll up, you know, you don't have to build a permanent bridge. He did a lot of really innovative things and, and Russell photographed his experiments. But in, in the Civil War, you know, it was important. Um, the, the construction of railroads and the destruction of railroads and then the rebuilding of railroads is very important. Each side was trying to destroy the other's railroads and then each side was trying to rebuild them as quickly as possible because railroads were very important in terms of moving troops and in terms of moving supplies and things. And so he photographed a lot of the help came up with these really innovative techniques in terms of putting the railroads back together after they've been destroyed. And so he essentially created illustrated manuals and then he got done with that and then uh, just photographed a lot of uh, different scenes. Uh, as We talked about this earlier. Not, not the battle scenes, but the before and after and armaments and fortifications and some of the generals and things like that. And at the end of the war, it's kind of interesting when you're doing this research, how people kind of disappear, right? And so I'm not 100% sure what he was doing. I, I've come across references to that he had a it's called a tintype gallery where he's taking tintype portraits of people um, called the Wide Awake Gallery. And then, but at some point, you know, a lot of the people who worked on the Union Pacific were old Union um, officers, right? And so probably there was a connection through that. And um, Thomas J. Durant um, approached, I'm guessing it was Thomas J. Durant, approached him about being the photographer for the Union Pacific. Hmm. Uh, it, it was very poignant to me to, to learn little glimpses of what happened to him after, after yeah. this period. Yeah, he kind of, you know, that's what's interesting is that he, um, he had a kind of his moment in the sun and um, where he's giving lectures in the East to the um, 
different photographic associations. And he's kind of a rock star among photographers. You know, he went out west. He took these well-known photographs of this, you know, the most well-known enterprise in America at that time. But then he, he goes and he, he works for Leslie's Illustrated. And we talked a little bit about that, how um, a lot of visual images were seen by people through these illustrated newspapers. And they came out once a week, Harper's Illustrated and Frank Leslie's. So he, he was working on that. So essentially, so he's working on the number two publication in America. He's an artist. And he would carve the woodcuts and things. They would, and, and he also took photographs for them. And then after that, he kind of just, I'm not sure. I think he, he has a studio, I, I, I'm guessing, in the 1880s. Um, but he applies for a pension. He applies for some government jobs. Um, he's living with his daughter in St. Cloud, Minnesota in 1895. I'm, I'm guessing he had some sort of form of early onset dementia and he couldn't work anymore, but he dies in Brooklyn in, in 1902 and it's sort of forgotten. You know, I scoured his, his hometown newspaper in 1902. Surely they would have talked about this because when he was in the civil war and on the railroad, you know, and, and, thank God for little gossipy hometown newspapers, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't think about it now, but back then they were so gossipy. Every little thing, you know, uh, Major Russell, Russell or Cap, Cap, they called him Major, he should have been Captain, was, was in town, you know, and he's been out on the railroad, you know. And so these little gossipy hometown newspapers, and he just sort of disappears and they kind of forget about him. Mm. And so once his photographs, you know, they were kind of the, the the big deal of the 1860s and 70s once that area is passed he's sort of forgotten about a little bit yeah it's a little sad uh so tell me about sleuthing and and piecing together his yeah. you become interested in this other than the famous the, the champagne yeah. photograph um you you i was interested to learn you you uh, found photographs in some of the usual places but you found some on eBay? Yeah. Um, yeah, so uh, I did. Uh, you know, a lot of his stereo views. Okay, so a stereo view is two images side by side. When you place them in a viewer, um, they appear three-dimensional. And those were actually his. That's what most people saw at the time. Those were his biggest sellers. And he sold those. You know, I don't have numbers, but the, they a lot of them lasted. You know, he must have sold thousands of them. And, um, so yeah, so I would look on eBay and I would look on, um, other, you know, uh, sites that were selling stereo views to look for his images. Um, in terms of the research, the, the two big, I, I had kind of two, um, big things in, in that, uh, there's, I found this genealogy site and it has all these little upstate New York newspapers just sort of scanned page after page. And there's almost no, you can't really search them, you know, keyword searching. And it's just, you almost have to look at it page by page in order to do this. And I finally kind of figured out a system. But again, that kind of those gossipy hometown newspapers, they mention everything. And so I was able to find some references for that. I was able to find the letters he wrote back to um, to the Noonday News when he was out West in 1869, he was kind of like a correspondent almost. He would write these letters. This is what, what I'm doing. This is what's going on on the West. They're not really about his photography. They're more about his travels. Right. And then, um, so then, uh, I, I, I was able to access a diary, Charles Smith, who was a, a clerk on the Union Pacific Railroad. And I actually accessed a transcript of the diary 
And he and Russell became business partners. And as well, they, they were, um, I think they were friends. They were business partners. They bunked up together. And so Smith talks a lot about Russell. So I was able to trace a lot of where he was at certain points, but also to trace where he was based on the photograph itself. If there was something in the photograph um, that could help me narrow it down, you know, he had to have been here, you know, at this point of time or around this time to kind of use all those sources to create, recreate this narrative of what he did during those two years mm. on the railroad. Well, what do you think it means? I mean, you've pieced this together. What, what does it mean to you to, to have pieced his as much as you could? Well, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Beyond it being kind of the sleuth and kind of research, I, I think most people enjoy research. Um, it, it maybe even a little more than, well, definitely more than writing. That's kind of the fun part, I think, of a research project. Um, I think a, a large part of this, and a lot of this we did in the Susquecentennial, is kind of piecing together the story of these people in the photos. We don't know who they are. Who are the individuals who labored on the railroad and, and built it together. And I appreciate some of the work that UPR did on that and other different uh, genealogy associations in terms of trying to tell that story of these are the people who worked on it. And there's surprisingly little about the people. And as a photo curator, that's part of my job, putting names to faces, you know, who are the people in the photographs. And, and, um, and, and I, it's hard to do for a lot of that. But I do think in terms of recreating the life of one person, one employee of the Union Pacific, you know, that was kind of where I got the satisfaction of this, is to retell his story. How he was one guy who came out here, you know, he didn't come out, you know, he wasn't a conqueror. He wasn't trying to build a financial empire. He was just trying to do his job and make sense of what he saw. And then he went back, and that's a lot of the stories of the people who worked on it. They came out, they did their job. It was brutal labor. I mean, brutal labor, lots of people died. And then they, they kind of disappear. And so to try to, I think that's kind of the labor of the next, you know, few years is to try and put all that together a little bit. Mm. Uh, so you're working on that? And I guess others <laughs> I, are? I should have, yeah, are? I should have clarified uh, other people. Other, other people's labor, okay, <laughs> I've kind yeah. of moved on to new yeah. projects. But, yeah. but I do think that part of the sesquicentennial a lot of that with the Chinese Railroad Workers Association, with the Hiberian Society, and with some of the stories that came out of that. I think you know there's some some rich areas where people can go in and start to start to do that. Mm. The the uh, uh, historian Ryan Derringer, out of Eastern Oregon University, um, has been working on. There's a book called The Filth of Progress, and he's been working on some of that. And mm. I think he he'll tell the story better than I would. <laughs> yeah, that'll be interesting to see, and that has been uh, wonderful to to see the so those stories come out. Yeah, uh, exactly. Centennial and, and after, I just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to end on uh, this interesting concept that you've thought a lot about. You write in the book how people view images, mm. and as, as a curator, you 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 know you put together exhibits, you put together collections, you yeah. maintain collections, you think a lot about this. I want to bring this uh, forward. Um, first of all, just personally, do you when when you when you go out just on vacation, you're snapping a <laughs> selfie. Does that color how you view view that, or how you're going to well, compose I, that image? Uh, I mean, in terms of in terms of that, this image is something that means something to me, mm. you know. But it wouldn't necessarily mean something to you, Tom, or to yeah. to a listener. It would be something that's very personal to me, 
and to kind of realize that this is sort of part of my story. Yeah. What I put. Yeah. From that. But in terms of a broader view of not, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just one person. Um, and I guess we'll continue. We'll always continue, um, you know, as cultures to have these iconic images, yeah, uh, come around and, and it, I guess it just, it just depends the, the certain photographer, just luck of the draw. And then the, he or she happens to be there, uh, and what's important to people. But, but I assume these will always be, be coming around these iconic images. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the great thing is that the story's never really finished. Right. Because there's a couple aspects of that is that, yeah, there's new, there's always things happening, new things that mean something. There'll be new images of that. Um, but then there's our reinterpretation, right? What do we see? And that's a valid, you know, I mean, it's a, it's, it's, it's valid to say, okay, what did somebody in 1869 see? But it's also valid to say, what did I, what do I see? What is my reaction to this photo? And this, that's going to be somebody that I'm going to have that different than somebody who, my daughter who's 12, um, and 50 years from now, somebody else will have a different interpretation of that. So sort of the never ending story, right? Sort of constant new reinterpretations of it. Yeah. But it's that conversation, right? Yeah. It's that it's that looking at that and thinking about it critically and sort of taking that critical eye and, and, and sort of thinking about that. I think that's the key part of it. Well, it's a good place to end the conversation. We're out of time anyway, so uh, th- thank you. Across the Continent, the Union Pacific Photographs of Andrew J. Russell. The book's out from University of Utah Press. And Daniel Davis is the author. He's the photograph curator and associate librarian of Utah State University Special Collections and Archives. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. Hi, this is Steve Williams. I'm bringing jazz time to UPR. Each week I'll feature commentary, history, the occasional interview, and of course lots of music. From ragtime to bop, from Havana to Paris to Logan, Utah, I'll be your guide through the many varieties of jazz music. I hope you'll join me for KCBW's Jazz Time with Steve Williams, Sunday evenings from 6 to 10 here on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. Next on Being, civil rights icon Ruby Sales on reckoning with the spiritual crisis of white America. That's why Donald Trump is essential. People think he's speaking to that pain that they're feeling. It's almost like white people don't believe that other white people are worthy of being redeemed. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Tune in Sunday evening at 5 o'clock to Utah Public Radio.